I do believe, and I have to remind myself that I believe, that things will get better. And the way that I remind myself of that is to go back to the stories of my faith and of my life. To be reminded that God is faithful and that even when it seems like everything is going wrong, there is hope. And the solution that I imagine may not be the one that is brought, but there will be good to come. So we are coming to begin to remember one of the main stories of our faith, the main stories of the faith of the Hebrew people, one of the stories that of the most famous people in all the world, in all time, Moses. Moses, the reluctant prophet. Moses was not an expected giant. Moses was not what you might imagine him to be, especially at the beginning of the story. And so just let go of the things you know are coming, at least in part, to hear the beginning. The story of Moses and the story of the Exodus has been relived over and over throughout history. It has empowered people across centuries and captivated people across many, many cultures. This is a story that happened and then happened again and then happens and gives hope to people in various circumstances. So before we get to Moses, we need a little background. So the first question is, where was Moses born? Egypt, yes. And where are where is most of the pivotal moments of the beginning of the story located? Egypt. Okay, so Egypt still has pyramids, right? Lots of them. And before Moses, there was Joseph. And Joseph came to Egypt because things weren't going so well for him and his family. So he went to Egypt, and then all his brothers came to Egypt as well. And that's the beginning of the book of Exodus. But then, a new king came to power in Egypt who did not know Joseph, did not remember about Joseph. And somehow, the great number of Israelites, the great number of Joseph's people and his family's people threatened Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They worked them hard and then harder. They made them slaves. But they still had plentiful children, those Israelites. And so they made even more severe plans to oppress the Israelites because they were afraid of them. They might join with their enemies and take them down, though we have no evidence that that 
would be true. The Hebrews had done nothing to rebel, nothing to harm the Egyptians, yet fear caused Pharaoh to make increasingly oppressive plans to harm the Israelites, and he even stoops so low as to target the children, the newborn babies. So we're going to pick up the story there in Exodus 1. After the story of fear is made clear, Pharaoh decides he needs to talk to some particular people who have a particular role in this society. The king of Egypt spoke to two Hebrew midwives named Shifra and Pua. When you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see the baby being born, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, you can let her live. Now, the two midwives respected God, so they didn't obey the Egyptian king's orders. Instead, they let the baby boys live. So the king of Egypt called the two midwives and said to them, why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? Now can you imagine you were told to do something by the most powerful person in your society, you didn't do it, and then they call you before them to say, why didn't you do what I told you to? What do you say? The two midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women, they are much stronger and give birth before many midwives, any midwives can get to them. <laughs> Is that a lie? I think it's a strategic telling of some, something, right? So God treated the midwives well, and the people kept on multiplying and became very strong. And because the midwives respected God, God gave them households of their own. Then Pharaoh gave an order to all his people, throw every baby born baby boy born to the hebrews into the nile river but you can let all the girls live these midwives their resistance is one of the first recorded acts of civil disobedience in history. Because of their actions, countless lives, probably including the life of Moses, were saved. They made the very difficult choice to put their own lives at risk rather than follow the orders 
of those in power acting in fear, those orders that had been given directly to them. But because the midwives were not able, were not able to fulfill the will of Pharaoh, he gave the order to all his people, all the Egyptians. He gave them all the authority to throw all the baby boys born into the Nile River. But you can let all the girls live. Let me just say this is fairly short-sighted. Because you need women to have babies, more women than men. So, and the Pharaoh knows that he has a lot of children himself, personally. So somehow this is fear of men growing up. We get rid of the babies. This is the context into which Moses was born. This story that we have about Moses is not <coughs> filled with long descriptions of the scene, long explanations of Moses' character with lots of descriptive words. This story is about action and dialogue. And this is how we know what is happening. These women act, and they speak, and they act, and they speak. And so does everybody else. So, let's go back to the story. <clears throat> now, a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful, so she hid him for three months. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket and set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank. The baby's older sister stood, stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. Can you imagine? Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river while her women servants walked along beside the river. She saw the baskets among the reeds, and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. The boy, the boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children because who else would put their baby in a basket and send them down the river? Then the baby's sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, where did she come from? Would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? 
Pharaoh's daughter agreed. Yes, do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I'll pay you for your work. So the woman took the child and nursed it. After the child had grown up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I pulled him out of the water. Joseph, Moses' mother's name is Jochebed. doesn't say in this part of the passage, but it says later. She doesn't have a name yet, but she does actually have a name. It's just not included. Jochebed refused to let her son die without trying to save him. And this was a risk. The water that was supposed to drown her son became the means of his rescue. That water, the water in Egypt, is connected to Moses, you might remember, is coming. And the water will drown the people in power rather than Moses later in the story. In this part of the story, the women, Shifra and Pua, Jochebed, Miriam, who is the older sister, and Pharaoh's daughter, all take major risks and break the law to save Moses and babies like him. They all have to trust that the actions they take are worth the risk, worth the lie, worth the possible consequences. They all decided that they could not stand with the system of oppression. They had to stand against and amazingly, they were all safe in taking these risks. They were all blessed because they made these risky choices. And these women and this story made Moses the person who he became. Miriam and Jochebed, and the others too, stepped into the water with trepidation, but still hoped that a better day would come, and that they would be a part of bringing that better day with the help of God. I don't know if you have heard the horrific news, the horrific new policy that the U.S. government is implementing and has started implementing over the past few weeks to forcibly remove children of immigrants entering our country from their parents. 
and relocate them to faraway places like Chicago from Texas or Arizona. Just this month, the Trump administration has begun following a blanket policy for referring for prosecution all people who cross our border with Mexico illegally, and some actually legally. This means that authorities send parents to jail, to jails run by the US Marshal Service, and their children wind up in the same agency as minors who came to the US without their parents, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is under the Department of Health and Human Services. On Friday, Chris Hayes had a nearly 12-minute segment on his show, All In, about the situation, and I'd really love for all of us to watch that whole segment, but I have just a two minutes of that to share with you now. What's happening right now is really unprecedented. What we've seen here in Arizona is actually, since January, over 200 cases of parents being separated from their children. And some of these children are extremely young, as you mentioned. Um, we've actually seen children who are two years old regularly. And uh, just last week, we saw a 53-week-old infant in court without a parent. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I'm having a really hard time thinking about this. So um, a 53-week-old infant uh, comes with, presumably, his or her mother. And they're apprehended by Customs Border Patrol. And then they're processed in some way. And at some point, someone from the government in a uniform comes and physically takes a 53-week-old baby away from the mother. Uh, that's correct, yeah. What, what happens oftentimes at the border is that the, the parents are separated and taken into separate custody and the children are brought into the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement and brought into shelters that are run by the government. Um, there are shelters and then who, like, it's hard to run a childcare system. Like, who's watching the 53-week-old infant? So again, it's the Office of Refugee Resettlement is tasked with housing children who are uh, unaccompanied minors. And in the past, that's always referred to uh, children who cross the border sort of on their own and, and wasn't really involving young children like what we're seeing now. But, I see. Um, what we're seeing now is that because the government is separating the children from the parents, the government is actually you know, rendering these children as unaccompanied minors and making them unaccompanied and bringing them into these shelters. Last month, Steve Wagner, the Acting Assistant Secretary of the Administration for Children and Families, which is, includes the Office of Refugee Resettlement, told us in its subcommittee that the federal gov government was unable to locate 1,475 children who had been released from its custody when it called to check in on them from October to the end of 2017. An additional 28 had run away and 52 were living with someone other than their initial sponsor because the process is to send them out to a sponsor who cares for them, if that's possible. The rest, 1,475 children were missing, their locations unknown. This is the report to the Senate 
This is not, these are facts. Once an unaccompanied minor is placed with a sponsor, he or she ceases to be in the custody of the US government. And all HHS, the Homeland Health and Human Services, provide provided subsistence, food, shelter, clothing, health care, and education ends at that point. And the child becomes the responsibility of his or her parent, guardian, or sponsor, a spokesperson for the agency set. Parents who are detained in custody are frequently unable to locate their children, as you can imagine in a system like this. So after their parents serve time for this misdemeanor of illegal entry, which is usually a few days, they're transferred to ICE for deportation. And with limited access to phones or the right to a public defender, parents have a hard time finding out where their children are frequently and are not assisted in reunification. More than 700 children have been taken from adults claiming to be their parents since October. And more than 100 children of those 700 are under the age of four. The Homeland Security officials said that the agency does not separate families at the border for deterrence purposes, but Trump administration officials, including John Kelly, have suggested publicly that they were indeed considering a deterrence policy. This is really disturbing, and I'm really sorry <laughs> to bring this to you, but we all need to know this is happening. It's so sad. It's so sad. The question that I think we need to ask ourselves is how do we find our place in the story? How do we today, like Shifra and Pua did thousands and thousands of years ago, find their place, our place, in our own stories? This is our story. This is where we are today and the country we live in. And the children are being forcibly removed from their parents into unsafe environments. How can we act towards justice and compassion when those in power are acting towards fear and retribution for simply showing up at our border? These are real questions. Who are the Moseses of today that can only live and succeed and do great things if we make a path for them?
I don't know all that can be done in this situation, but I do know that on Tuesday morning, I will be contacting all of my federal representatives to make sure that they are aware of this situation and that they have a stance about it. And I will be standing and looking for ways to stand with immigrant families and children against the tyranny of fear of people who have done nothing to harm anyone. There is no reason to be afraid. Just like Pharaoh was overcome with irrational fear and did terrible things, that is what is happening today. Shifra and Kua and Jochebed and Miriam and the princess all took risks, all stood in the way, in the water. And we, probably at much less risk, need to step into the water, even if we have trepidation and hope that a better day will come. And it won't just come because it will happen, but it will come because we act, and we speak, and we do. And that when that happens, God will be a part of bringing that better day. But just like in that song we sing, the angels cannot change a world of hurt and pain, into a world of love, of justice, and of peace. The task is ours to do. God help us to obey. The story of Moses is not an ancient story that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. It is a story that is happening again and again and again. And our challenge is to find ourselves in that story and to ally ourselves with the God who is doing amazing things and wants to do amazing things through us and with us. Amen.